listening to highlights from One Planet Podcast's interview with Rob Nixon, nonfiction author and Barron Family Professor of Environmental Humanities at Princeton. What is it that drew you to become involved in the environmental humanities um, and how you could in, um, join um, your, your dispersed interests into that particular, what set you on that path? Yeah, so I could, so I grew up in South Africa and um, when I was, a, when I was a boy, I wanted to become an ornithologist. So my birds were my passion and my expertise. Um, and then when I went to college in South Africa, I majored in African languages and I became sort of immersed in anti-apartheid politics and, and eventually had a military call up and left. Uh, I went into exile in the US. And so I've now lived most of my life in the US. But once I got immersed in African languages and uh, got to a more texted understanding of the politics of the place I was growing up in, uh, in, somehow, in some ways it tainted my relationship to the environment because um, the environment was subject to um, the, the politics of the time. In other words, there were zones of exclusion where white, white, a white boy like me could roam freely um, but if I'd been, you know, of a different race or a different gender, I wouldn't have had that access. And so by the time I got to New York, where I did my PhD with Edward Said, um, I, had, I had almost uh, completely rejected that link to, that early link to uh, the environment, my, my, my passions for the natural world. I set that aside completely for maybe about 15 years. Uh, because it seemed entirely corrupted by the politics that governed that environment. And so I um, trained as a post-colonial scholar. Uh, Edward Said was my, my supervisor. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> the turning point for me was um, the assassination of Ken Sarawiwa in Nigeria in 1995. Um, and Ken Sarawiwa had described the attack on the, his Agoni people who lived in the Niger Delta and the landscape, the mangrove forest in that region as a form of ecocide. Uh, it was a cultural assault and it was an ecological assault. And so I, I taught Ken Sarawiwa's, and, and then he, he and eight other protesters were executed for their, for their attempt to defend the Niger Delta against uh, the, the, the oil pollution, uh, the unregulated oil pollution coming from Shell, Chevron, and the Nigerian oil company. Um, so what, what really struck me was that here was an African writer invoking in environmental values. Uh, and that to me was something quite new um, because typically Africans, uh, particularly I would say in East Africa and Southern Africa, their primary experience of uh, environmentalism was of people, NGOs or uh, wealthy people flying in from Geneva or Paris or London or Washington DC and telling them to get off land in order to conserve a uh, big game for, uh, so, so there was very little acknowledgement at that point uh, in Western environmental movements of what, what, what uh, uh, people have called the environmentalism of the poor, 
that people are living dependent on ecosystems develop over centuries and millennia a relationship to the resources and the spirits of that particular land or water for that matter. So in 1995, I taught my first environmental justice course um, with Rachel Carson in, and uh, Derek Jarman and uh, Ken Sarweaver. And uh, since then, so I've been teaching in this field for about 25 years. Um, and I would say that one of the, so environmental justice, for those who, who may be familiar with it, is basically looking at um, inequalities in access to resources and unequal burdens of um, harm, unequal burdens of toxicity, for instance. So it's, it's both do communities have access to, uh, to leisure, to green spaces, to the resources that the, the wealthy have? And why and how can we redistribute the fallout of our actions as societies uh, more equally so that we don't have um, uh, zip codes where it's uh, where children are disproportionately likely to get asthma from uh, emissions and also uh, in relation to climate uh, low-lying islands uh, the designations of the Sahel uh, how they um, are disproportionately uh, burdened with the the, the carbon uh, intensive uh, commodity lives that um, people in the richer nations have been living for a long time. So that was basically the arc uh, of my thinking. And so I came, I, I, I started in the environment, then I moved to post-colonial studies, and now I'm in a sort of dialectical movement, I think, inspired by Ken Weaver, I found a way to reconcile those two concerns. Um, and, and now the, the world slowly, gradually is coming around to this environment, it's environmentalism for all, not, I mean, environmentalism for the poor, but it's not this kind of, um, the environment as our property, which just seems like a twisted kind of environmentalism. Yes, yes, yes. So I think, um, a couple of things that I, I do find encouraging is there's more of a recognition of um, the profound indigenous knowledge bases that uh, are not only salient to them in terms of protecting their um, ecosystem-based cultures, but also offer imaginative portals into other ways of thinking and being uh, unlike the sort of deeply extractivist, uh, carbon-intensive models that pre predominate that predominate today. So, if I if I could say one thing about the field that is encouraging to me is that for a long time, particularly perhaps in the U.S., environmentalism was about spaces where people aren't, about wilderness, the absence of people. Uh, but that's a very limiting model, both because the U.S. is very likely populated relative to, say, Indonesia or China or India or Nigeria. Um, it's a likely populated country and it's a very wealthy country. And so it doesn't really offer a blueprint for environmental uh, action um, in, in other parts of the world, in Europe included, in fact. Yeah. How do you see the 
policy landscape of this uh, environmental justice carrying forward over the next generation or so? Are you optimistic for the the efforts of people in movements like the Sunrise Movement? Because I know there have been many movements that have come up in the past where you see things kind of fizzle out. Do you think we're at a juncture now where this notion of environmental justice can be carried forward and become a real part of the public discourse in the country and around the world? Yes, I do think so. I think it varies from country to country, but in in the US, certainly, I feel like the um, those who are promulgating uh, climate doubt, for instance, um, you know, there's a book called Doubt is Their Product. And so we, the, 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 there were these conservative and very often uh, conser conservative think tanks, conservative uh, donors, who were very often linked to coal production, to big oil and so forth, who were funding, who were bankrolling climate doubt, like um, is the science in yet? Um, where it's too early to tell whether climate change is actually exacerbating these, um, the, these uh, disastrous weather events. Uh, now that is really abating. And, and obviously that was always more acute in the US than anywhere else. Um, in other parts of the world, climate doubt simply didn't have the, the same institutional backing uh, and, the, and the deep pockets that uh, it had in the US. But I think things have shifted now quite significantly, whether, it, whether it's soon enough or not, or whether it's too late is, is another question. Uh, the, other, the other source of, of, of hope there is that generationally, um, people's priorities have shifted massively so that if you look at the under 25s in the US, um, climate breakdown is a much more um, pressing issue for them than it is for the over 65s. Um, similarly, I think with the demographic shift in the US, uh, with the younger generations being more diverse, uh, they're also more, in some sense, more globalized and more connected to these international movements where young people are campaigning for quite similar things, uh, com people coming from very, very different backgrounds. Uh, and, and different societies are coming together um, to a degree that they haven't, even you know, in the in the height of the environmental movement in the in the 70s and 80s, say in the US. So I do think there's there's a big big shift, and it's also become courtesy of environmental justice. It has become more enfolded into other pressing concerns like inequitable housing, inequitable zoning question of reparations, all of these are uh, woven into the environmental movement now to a degree that they weren't. So that I do find hardening is uh, both a generational shift and a more kind of integrated response where environmentalism isn't just uh, something off to the side that we're going to leave to the, the, the dippy hippies kind of thing. Just to remember to, to take inspiration from the historical examples of movements that seemed up against it, uh, where, where it seemed impossible to um, shift anything, and then things shift, and suddenly you get a you, you get a surge 
almost a tsunami of change. Uh, and uh, I can, I've, I've lived through at least several examples of that, but one was with, with apartheid in South Africa, you know, we've grown up there. I thought this is system is locked into stone. It's so militarized. It's so um, impossibly uh, un, uh, unequal in the, in the resources in, in, in the two sides. And then it got internationalized and suddenly it shifted. Uh, we had a new political order. I'm sure people in the Soviet Union felt the same thing, you know. Uh, and then I was living in New York in the late 80s and early 90s and lived through the AIDS crisis uh, with, with the sense that um, um, contracting AIDS was, was a death sentence and the demonization of, of um, both homosexuality and actually sexual desire and in a larger sense. Um, by the, by the, many of the church leaders and the political leaders at the time, Reagan and his wife. Um, and then we had silence equals death. We had the pink triangle. We had uh, ACT UP. We had um, um, AIDS activists getting involved in accelerating research into antiretrovirals and so forth. And so much shifted uh, very, very fast. Uh, and the, you know, at least in the wealthier countries and in many poorer countries, uh, that particular disease was, was brought under control. Um, similarly, I would have said, you know, when I, having lived most of my life in the US now, I would have said that gay marriage was a, was a non-starter. Uh, just like many people might feel gun control is a non-starter now. Um, but the Marriage Equality Act uh, built slowly, and it's built partly as people uh, came out more, and then more um, cis people uh, knew family members or friends or relatives who were uh, out, and they they got involved in in defending their rights, and so. Um, these 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 social movements, or, or the let's let's put it back, the, put it differently, the the hegemonic assumptions about what is is and isn't possible uh, can move, and they can move sometimes steadily over time, and sometimes quite rapidly. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn about more environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.